0: Hello, welcome to another episode of the Bitcoin Standard Podcast. Our guest today is Tariq Al-Diwani. Tariq is the director at Creatok Zest Limited and his book, The Problem with Interest on the Nature of Usury and Modern Banking, was first published in 1997 and has attracted wide readership among scholars of Islamic finance. As well as scholars of Bitcoin, I should say. So we are also joined by uh, Alan Farrington here, who's recently published a book uh, titled Bitcoin is Venice. And it draws heavily on the work of uh, Tariq. And I think it's very interesting that a lot of is find um, the um, economic work of Tariq and Islamic finance in general. Um, ...to be relevant to the topic of Bitcoin, and I certainly think so. So before we've hosted here, Harris Irfan and um, uh, Safdar Alam, and we've discussed Bitcoin from the perspective of Islamic finance. We've discussed why uh, Harris believes Bitcoin is the most Islamic uh, Sharia-compliant form of money, and why Safdar believes Bitcoin is a better alternative that is more Sharia-compliant than um, Islamic Sharia banks. Today... Um, we are hosting Tariq to discuss specifically the topic of interest and to get the uh, Islamic economic perspective on the problem with interest and the case against interest. Um, why is interest bad? And then we're going to discuss with Tariq uh, Bitcoin, his thoughts on Bitcoin, and whether um, he also sees some sort of correct- connection um, between Bitcoin as a form of money and the principles of Islamic finance and um, how we think, and I think this is perhaps the most interesting question that this leads us to is what does this tell us about the nature of finance in a Bitcoin world? If we live in a, on a Bitcoin standard, what would finance look like? And I think the work of Islamic uh, finance scholars um, might be more relevant to Bitcoin than many might imagine. So, It's great to have you here, Tarek. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: All right. So um, tell us a little bit first about your uh, background. Um, What brings you into the world of Islamic finance? Why do you write about it? What do you do for a living? And What is your business? What do you sell?
1: Uh, Yeah, well, I've always been working in uh, finance, accounting, investment. Uh, I started... My life in London in a uh, stockbroking uh, financial <clears throat> uh, dealing uh, company, uh, quite a large one. And I set up a desk there uh, dealing in interest rate derivatives, which, uh, you know, it's like I tell people this is like a double haram, you know, <laughs> interest rates and, and derivatives are both generally prohibited by Islamic scholars. I didn't really know that at the time um in particular i had an idea that it might not be uh a uh, I mean, people used to say oh you know you, you're, you're earning ill-gotten gains but this was kind of a secular criticism of of the dealing and financial um speculation industry in london which came from many people and it was like uh, uh sometimes you know motivated by jealousy because people in that industry do earn way above the average and and in fact i was just recalling the other day to so, one of my friends that uh, I started as an accountant actually for a few months at KPMG and uh, um, I was offered 20 times my salary to go and work in this dealing company. And at the age of 20 something, you know, to be offered that amount of money and a, a fast car and, you know, an unlimited expense account, it, it's very difficult to say no. Uh, and that is why that industry actually uh, perpetuates, you know, uh, in many ways. It, it benefits quite a large number of people very substantially. You know, there's a big vested interest in keeping the status quo, you not know, just there, banking and other. Um, so um, I got sucked into that world for a few years, for five years. And and then one day I thought to myself, look, really, what I'm doing, I began to see, you know, the way the system was working. And, uh, um uh, that it, you know that those criticisms of ill-gotten gains were actually quite justified but in ways that most people didn't recognize um and i thought look i i want to do something different uh, i'm not quite sure what um i resigned i didn't have anything to go to um uh, <laughs> my salary dropped by you know uh, Hundred percent, basically. Um, and uh, but I, I had some savings, and I studied for a couple of years, and I came across Islamic finance, and I started reading quite widely and heavily. And I joined the British Library, and I started to uncover a lot of books there, which one doesn't generally find um, written, you know, over many centuries, actually. And I discovered the whole world of monetary reform and, you know, financial um, uh, reform. Uh, from people going back to William Cobbett in the 19th century in England and these people were not Muslims, they they just had a a secular justice based uh, critique uh of of the financial system that london had developed you know all those centuries ago and was continuing to develop so i got very interested um and at the same time i I came across the islamic finance world and eventually i started working in islamic finance um in project finance in equity and investment and i've been doing that then ever since
0: okay so then um Tell us, what is the uh, problem with interest, which is the topic of your book? I've read your book. I think it's a fascinating um, read. I highly recommend it. Um, what What is the central argument of your book in terms of what is the problem with interest, if you could summarize it?
1: Yeah, I mean, there are problems at um, what you might say a legal level. If you look at it legally speaking, what is the contract under which interest is awarded? Um, and then there are, macro um, issues of what what are the consequences of having an interest based system. Um, The one leads to the other, in my view. Um, And then there are the political issues surrounding uh, the uh, interest based financial system that we have. um, And, you know, what that does to power structures. And Um, and I suppose one could include the social issues, but, you know, uh, uh, I, I would say that uh, you know let's lump these in all together in, in in terms of the effects of uh, what, in my view, is a legally unjustified contract. Um, the and actually, I was mentioning the Christian scholars. They they started off you know eight nine hundred years ago. The Scholastics writing about this, um, and um, it, one of their themes the, the early Christian scholars was. Um, uh, to address the proposal at the time, the interest was a a, a rental, uh, a rental of money. And, you know, just like you rent a horse for someone to use for a, a day or a month or a year, why can't you rent some money? Um, and uh, their response to that was illegal. I'll just give you that as a brief example, and we can go more into it if you like. But they said, look, um, if, if someone uh, rents you a horse, then... Um, you pay for the use of the horse, but you don't actually own the horse. Uh, if you own the horse, why would you be renting it? You, you can't pay rental on something that you yourself own. So it, a rental is not a sale. Uh, a rental uh, it, it is something that you pay for the use. Kind of now, if you take the horse and the horse uh, is, is stolen uh, through no fault of your own, Um then whose loss is it, they asked. And the answer to that question is that the the loss is the loss of the owner of the horse. The one who owns it, if it's stolen, bears the loss. The critical question then is if money borrowed is like a horse being rented, um, then what happens if you go to somebody, you borrow a £1,000 from them, and the money is stolen? Whose loss is it? And clearly, under law as it is now and as it was then, you bear the loss. Now, the borrower of the money bears the loss, in which case the money must belong to the borrower, in which case it can't be a rental, in which case one shouldn't pay rental on something that one owns. right? In which case the only fair price for £1,000 purchased, yeah, it's not rented, remember, it's purchased, the only fair price for a £1,000 purchased is a £1,000. If it was more or less, it would be unjust to one of the parties. That's an example of a very early legal argument of why interest is not justified on a contractual basis. Um, there were many other proposals made, some of which had legal connotations, some which had an economic connotation. Um, <clears throat> and... Uh, Those went forward through many centuries. In the 19th century, you had the idea from Nassau Senior that money, um, when you borrow it and you pay interest, the lender is the one who's having to abstain from the use of his money and he needs to be compensated for his abstinence. So interest was a reward for abstinence. And this is a kind of economic, a microeconomic argument. Um, people criticise Nassau Senior because they said, look, money lenders often, they have lots of money and they lend a little bit of it they don't have to abstain from anything they've still got plenty of money, what's actually the loss that's been caused to them? Their cash pile shrinks by a bit, but they, they don't have to abstain so if there's no abstinence then under Nassau Senior's Uh, argument and what actually is the compensation for. So you had those economic arguments, you had the legal arguments. Uh, If we look at those and we see that there is somehow an injustice in the interest-based financial contract, then we come to a philosophical point. And uh, that philosophical point is, well, if there is a corruption in a key legal contract, which is endemic throughout society, then there will be corruption in the society. Uh, and one can say even more, perhaps, so about the monetary system, if the money that we use is corrupted, then the society that uses the corrupt money will become corrupted. Um, that's a philosophical argument, if you like. And I guess we can look at all of those. But there, there, there is your sort of chain of development to the modern day now, where people often criticize you know what's going on in the world and they say we need solutions we need we, we we need remedies you know um and i think my core point is that if you want to remedy a problem you need to address the core of the problem you need to address its cause yeah not its effects and i do believe that most of what's happening now in terms of public policy uh, is something that addresses the effects the results of a corrupt Monetary uh, and financial system, and not the cause of that corruption. And, and until we address that cause, we're not going to get anywhere. Really.
0: The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safedean.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots 12 hours apart to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House which will be publishing and delivering the best bitcoin and austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook and ebook formats. Go to the safehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lichack's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiners bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with a nice colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's a very powerful argument. And to be clear, a lot of people associate the argument against interest with Islamic finance because it is most prominently made by uh, Muslims and Islamic scholars, but it is by no means unique to Islam. As you point out, a lot of Christian scholars have made this argument over the ages. And um, as you point out in your book, Plato and Aristotle also spoke about the problem of interest and uh, where it is a problem. Um, and, of course, um, there is an extensive discussion of the um, – social and uh, moral and political implications of this but i'd like to begin you know, as an economist i'm gonna um, i'd like to begin with um discussing the um the economic case against uh interest and here what i find interesting is um the way that i look at it is i i i reach the same conclusion as you i can see an argument made against um interest but i don't really reach it through the same Um, route that you take so you argue against the time preference theory of interest rate as an explanation of interest rate which is the austrian perspective now i have a perspective on this that is inspired by the austrians but at the same time different from the austrians in certain ways so um could you care to explain to us what is uh, your case against time preference as a theory of interest so uh, or before that let me at least make the austrian case for time preference Um, and then you can uh, give us your objection to it. So the Austrian case is that uh, people prepare the present to the future. People prefer the satisfaction of a particular need today over its satisfaction in the future. So if I were to offer you um, a sum of money today or offer you the same sum of money and give you the choice between taking it today or taking it tomorrow or a year from now or 10 years from now, um, all else being equal, you know, assuming that it's the same exact sum of money that can buy you the same exact things, or actually to make the example more concrete, you don't even tie it to a sum of money, you make it an actual physical good. So would you rather have a uh, meal today or in 10 years? Would you rather have a house today or in 10 years? And um, the Austrians say that time preference is a category of human action, it's just an inherent way of how humans are wired, that we will choose the present over the future. And so therefore, if you offer me between getting an apple today or an apple in 10 years, I'll take the apple today. The only way that you can get me to defer accepting the apple today is if you offer me you know, an apple plus something more in a year. So... I'll only be willing to defer taking, um, not eating an apple today, if the offer, that is the alternative, that is the future, you know, the apple tomorrow or an apple in a year, is larger than this apple. If you make it large enough, then I'm willing to take it. So, wh- why uh, why do you not agree with the uh, time preference theory of interest rate?
1: Yeah. Um, <clears throat> first of all, I, I agree that humanity is hardwired to be uh, impatient. Um, uh, to want things now, sooner rather than later. Right? I think that's indisputable. Um, the question is, um, firstly, is that actually the case in all cases or, or even in most cases? And secondly, um, should we encourage it? Um, so let's look at the first. I, I think there are many examples, Uh, of cases where people don't actually, now to later. Um, And I've given examples of this, I'm sure you're aware of them. Uh, For example, if you ask me, do I want seven breakfasts today or one breakfast each day for, the next week, then I'd be mad to choose seven breakfasts today. Uh, if you ask me do I want my whole lifetime's worth of holidays this year or would I prefer to have one every year for the next 30 years, I'd clearly prefer later to now. I want some holidays later and maybe one now. There are many examples where humanity actually uh, Prefers, despite its hard wiring, to have things later than in the present. And if that's the case, then why do we have a uh, all pervasive rule which says that the money which we use for our transactions and which sometimes determines which transactions we do? Why should that money follow a different rule? Uh, th- that argument becomes much more powerful if you consider that. Um, you know, just because human beings prefer something or in some way hardwired, it doesn't mean it's actually good for them. I mean, there are many human beings who are very self-destructive, and they prefer modes of behavior which they may enjoy, but are actually very harmful. Right? And and so the sole uh, uh, cause here of saying, "Look, humanity is hardwired," this it doesn't necessarily justify the action, right? And it doesn't justify the rule uh, which is, is posited on that action. Um, I extend that issue of time preference because yeah, if we do accept that money now is worth more money uh, than money later, uh, so £100 today is the equivalent of £110 next year, some hugely destructive uh, consequences flow from that. And I think one of the clearest examples for people who do do finance, um, and I used to do project financing for my Job And so I know that the, the financing industry does this on a daily basis. They do what's called discounted cash flow analysis. And at the centre of that is the idea that £100 today is worth £110 tomorrow and vice versa. I give a very simple example, um, which is not my own, actually. I've taken it from, from another researcher. God bless him, because I, I think I, I would never have come across it. I've not seen it anywhere else. Michael Lipton is his name. Um, who says, look, you've got a farmer. Uh, his father, his grandfather, his, the generations before him have done sustainable farming. They've earned the equivalent of 100 pounds a year of uh, profit on their farm. Someone comes along and says, look, I've got this chemical, you can add it and you can do highly intensive farming and you can earn 150 pounds of profit per annum per year, but only for the next 15 years, because after that, uh, your land's going to become desertified and uh, you won't be able to produce anything ever, it's going to turn to desert as far as we can see. Now if you take those two streams of cash flows, £100 a year forever looking forward, which is reasonable because it's happened since time immemorial, since you knew uh, your fathers and predecessors have been doing, or you take £150 a year for 15 years only, if you put a interest rate, time preference rate of 10% on that two series of cash flows and says you say to yourself, which one do I prefer? Then the discounted cash flow analysis tells you to take the highly intensive route, to actually take the 150 a year for 15 years and then leave the land as desert. And it says to you as a, a analytical tool that that selection of land use is more profitable than the £100 a year indefinitely. Now, that has to be wrong. And, and, and particularly now that we're in this crisis of uh, ecological uh, decline, we, we need to make the leap of understanding that this is not about how people do farming. It's not about whether they use chemicals. It, it's about the financial system, which encourages them to make the wrong choices. Right. So let's come back to time preference. Let's say it is human nature. Let's say we are greedy. Are we impatient? The question is this. Should we have a system which is encouraging us to be greedy and impatient
0: so I see that case, and i as I was saying, I arrive at similar conclusions to you, but I kind of take a slightly different methods let me Let me make the kind of um, Austrian case against interest, which is that yes discounting exists because it's just a part of human nature because um i think the example you offer about seven breakfasts today i don't think it really makes sense because the choice is uh, um, these are different goods you're taking a second breakfast today comparing it to the first breakfast tomorrow Um, but the comparison between the same first breakfast today versus the same breakfast tomorrow always introduces the preference to the breakfast today and the reason for that you know the reason ultimately time preference exists and the reason time preference is positive is that humans are mortal we die there's always uncertainty so um, there, there's no question that you would prefer something today over 50 years from now because you could be dead in 50 years. Same is true for five years and five days. You, there's always the chance of dying. And so we prefer the satisfaction of early needs because the present is certain the, and the future is uncertain. And not only that, take but also- away,
1: Take but, that away for a moment. Let's remove that from the issue then. Let's talk about the
0: fact. If you'll just let me- uh, I want to take
1: the personality away from it. Don't attach it to the human being. Talk about the planet. Ask the question: Is uh, one I'll, planet today I'll, I'll, get, to worth I'll get to that. I'll get to that. I'll
0: get to that. I'll get to that. I'll get to that. But let me just finish to the uh, the point that I'm making, which is that, um, so we we always do perform this discounting, and the evidence for this is that, um, you know, ultimately, if we don't discount the future, uh, we don't consume today. You know, we're indifferent between consuming today and consuming tomorrow. So there is a degree of discounting of the future this is where I agree with the Austrians. But where I agree with you is that this does not necessarily translate to a market interest rate. And the reason for that, let me give you the kind of Austrian perspective of why. And then it arrives at a similar conclusion as to you in terms of the um, high time preference uh, consequences of it, which is that we deplete our capital stock in terms of the natural capital stock. We deplete the farm. It's a similar example to an example that I use. The example you used is very similar to one that I use in the fiat standard. And the idea is this. According to the Austrians, time preference determines the interest rate because uh, time preference is the degree to which people will accept um, discounting, uh, will accept uh, uh, delaying gratification for the future. So they need, the higher their time preference, the higher you need to pay them. So the higher the interest rate. The lower the time preference, the lower the interest rate. This is a key idea. And so what effectively Islamic finance is saying and the kind of moral and very normative perspective which you're proposing is essentially saying we need to have a lower time preference. So I think of the case against interest as not uh, negating the time preference theory of interest. I think it fits better if you accept the time preference theory of interest and say what we're calling for is a society that is... um, uh, low time preference. And, and the way that I see it is that, um, you know, if you look historically at interest rates, and there's a study by um, um, Homer and uh, Scylla called, I think, oh, yeah. um, a, a History of Interest history Rates. History
1: of Interest Rates, yeah.
0: yeah. And it studies history, interest rates, data on interest rates over 5,000 years. What you notice is that there's a significant downward trend um, as human civilization advances, As our capital stock increases, as our technological advancement increases, as our productivity increases, and as our time preference drops, interest rates begin to decline. They rise in times of war, they rise in times of crisis, they rise when bad things happen. But when there's peace and security, and the longer there's peace and security, and the longer that people are stable and um, um, secure in their property rights, you witness interest rates decline. And so if you look at the world at the end of the 19th century, before the World War began, Began. Um, at that point, interest rates were around, you know, the lowest benchmark interest rate for the Bank of England was around only 2%. So we're already headed in that direction. And I think if we'd stayed on a hard money for another century, I think there was nowhere to go but for interest rates to continue to drop because time preference would continue to drop. You know, people would save more, they would accumulate more wealth. Yeah,
1: quite possibly. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And then interest rates would drop. And I think. Um, the reason zero interest rate I think is eventually the um, end point is that interest rate can on, uh, time preference can only drop as civilization advances and as uh, people become more and more uh, uh, productive and they have more wealth and they're able to delay gratification more, they accumulate more savings. And so savings become more abundant in society. and then the cost of maintaining the savings, Uh, becomes higher than the interest rate that you would get on the market. This is really the key thing, which is the insight that you bring, which is that, you know, if you borrow an ox, the ox depreciates over a year. All goods depreciate over time. And the idea that money doesn't depreciate doesn't really make sense. And I think it's true because there is, and it's true for money as well, because there is always a cost to carrying money. Yes. Whatever the money is, there is a cost to carrying it. So... um, Every money leaks value in a sense because you have to pay to secure it. There's a risk, and there's insurance. So if you if you have significant sums, you have to first store them, and B, you have to insure them. So there's always, a, a, you know, depending on the kind of money and the way you store it and the way that you insure it, there's always a cost, which is the cost of the storage of the money, the, the, the carrying cost of the money. Yeah, I think my case against interest, and uh, this is kind of. Um, I don't know if anybody has made this before. I think it's it, it's my idea is that as time preference drops, it eventually drops under the cost of carrying the money to the point where um, uh, you will accept re- getting 0% nominal interest on your money because it is saving you the storage cost.
1: Yeah, it sounds interesting in a hard money system.
0: Exactly, in a hard yes, money system, yeah. yes. Yeah,
1: one predicated on that. Look, um, I... Two things. I, I interrupted you because I think uh, I, I understand your issue about satiation. You know, we've satiated our desire for one breakfast. There. But the reason I asked you to take the, the human personality out of that argument is because it brings the argument to a more pure basis, let's say. You could do a discounted cash flow analysis to ask is it worth us spending 2% of global gross domestic product per year to save the planet? right in 300 years time and even with a discount rate of two or three percent it would not be worth it. Is it clearly showing the absurdity uh, of the discounted category now that takes the human personality out of it because we're not going to be here in 300 years time and the question then becomes what right does one generation have to make a judgment on what values generations in two or three hundred years time have right. We compare a planet today to a planet tomorrow, and we say, look, you know, why should we usurp any of the value of a planet in the year 2300 and eat that value up today, Ir- irrevocably, right? Um, so this question of time preference, yes, you could, I understand you know, your, what, what you're saying, but take the human personality out of it and look at objective values you know, the value of the planet, yeah? Not to us, but to generations who haven't been born yet. And let's ask the question that way. And now it becomes a lot clearer that it's not about me satiating my appetite or being greedy. This, this is actually, in a way, it's a question of morality, pure morality, right?
0: Um, no, absolutely. You know, um, I, um, Joseph Schumpeter said, uh, no, I think it was Eugene bomberg who said, uh, Um, the interest rate is a measure of a nation's morality the lower the interest rate the more these people are able to save the more they are able to control themselves the more they're able to be moral in terms of thinking of the long term so i agree with you that the socially optimal social discount rate is as close to zero percent as possible and uh, effectively um you know if you Uh, if you make the normative argument, which is that, you know, we want to live in a society where bad things uh, are minimized, where we don't want to have people kicked out on the street because they uh, missed the payment on a loan. We don't want to sacrifice um, resources uh, that could be available for the future. It's better that we adopt as low a discount rate as possible. And I think this is what ends up happening in a normal society with hard money, with capital accumulation. And the, the discount rate continues to drop. Where I also, another disagreement we have is uh, the idea that we're destroying the planet. I don't think that we're destroying the planet. Um, but that's a discussion for another uh, day. I think where, where I see the problem is if you look at what's happening to soil, you know, so, um, you, you look at a place like the US, where for hundreds of years they used to grow, and not just the US, all over the world, for hundreds and for thousands of years they used to farm lands according to sustainable methods that they'd used for many thousands of years and as you say now um, they, they're suddenly adopting all of these intensive farming techniques to um, ro- take out all the nutrients in the land and sell them as quickly as possible and make a quick uh, profit in the first year or two or three and it leads to the destruction of the soil and then it leads to the destruction of the nutrient value of the future crops this is the soil catastrophe that the world really is experiencing that's the real problem it's not a problem of CO two in the atmosphere. I think that's that's um, yeah. a, and, and a completely um, baseless threat in terms of portraying it as a crisis. What's a true crisis is the fact that our soil is depleted, and our soil is depleted because our time preference is raised by the fact that our money is inflationary, which yeah. is um, well. A, and- that's and right, when, uh, which which is a manifestation of the interest problem. Where we kind of you agree did. is that uh, interest. In your analysis, you make the argument that interest is what causes inflation, and I think I agree.
1: Yeah, look, if you're a businessman uh, and you can borrow money at five percent and invest it into your farming uh, business uh, and make twenty percent uh, by doing highly intensive farming, uh, then. There's a very strong incentive to borrow at 5% and do highly intensive farming because you make 15% net for yourself, right? Um, and if you then have a society which is very heavily indebted because of the way the monetary system works and wants to naturally, as a human instinct, to try and get out of debt, then the way to do that is to grow your economy. Um, I sincerely believe that, uh, you know, this kind of worshipping of economic growth that we have is caused by this combination of indebtedness and interest charges which make businesses generally feel the impetus, feel the need to grow uh, what they're doing and that is a kind of in aggregate what we call forced economic growth. It leads to many kinds of uh, you know uh, uh, cancers if you like in society. It's um, eating the, the, the seed corn. It's eating the seed corn and it's interesting actually that in, in, in Arabic the word ribba has this connotation of growth um uh, and, and so does the word zakah, which is the wealth tax, you know, which is a good thing. It has a connotation of growth. So you have good growth and bad growth. Um many times I've said when I talk to people that, you know, if I come home and I tell my wife that I've got a growth, she'll cry. You know, we are worshiping economic growth, but the thing we're worshiping is the bad kind of growth. You know, we must distinguish some growths are not good for us. Um, and uh, if we are um going to try and uh, have a, a successful resolution to the the ecological crisis that we're facing we must recognize that one of the drivers is our financial system whether that manifests itself in you know whether the soil is the cause of the c o two or the, the the declining crop yields or whatever it may be, but the the issue is that we are forced into ways of business activity uh, that are not good for us, um, and we mustn't get hooked on this idea of growth you know where there's a celebration in the financial markets every time we have a uh, you know unexpectedly high growth uh, that actually may be very bad news for us,
0: yeah. All right, so I wanna, before we get into Bitcoin, I wanna bring in uh, Alan. Uh, Alan Farrington has written a a, a great new book called Bitcoin is Venice. And um, it includes a a part of the book um, discusses how Bitcoin is this new thing and how a lot of people are struggling to um, make sense of it and how it makes sense, you can make sense of it through various different metaphors and various different descriptions. And one of them um, is how Bitcoin is halal and Bitcoin is um, Islamic uh, Sharia-compliant money. So, Alan, uh, it's great to have you here again. Um, what are your thoughts on um, the discussion so far and on Tariq's book and um, um, any questions you might have for him?
2: Yeah, I think I, I probably had too many questions. So you, I'll, <laughs> I'll ask my favorite one and you can cut me off if necessary. Um, Tarek, it's. I, I just want to say as well, it's. It's a pleasure to be able to speak with you and and to reiterate what Safe said just now, but also at the start. Um, I I think that the problem with interest is the most cited book in my own. I'm actually not completely sure on that. I haven't <laughs> done a full count, but in any case, it's it would make me jealous. <laughs> it would. It would be a close call with uh, James C. Scott seeing like a state. So uh, you're you're in good company, and you're at worst second place. Um, I I should say as well, actually, that even even outside of my book, um, I think that in particular chapters uh, two through four, if I remember correctly, are literally the best explanation of the modern banking system that I've ever come across. And so I've actually recommended your book to uh, to former colleagues in finance, um, purely on that basis and like nothing to do with Islam, nothing to do with Bitcoin. So, um, yes, very,
1: very, very. Maybe they'll start buying a few there.
2: Yeah. Well, well, we were saying before you came on that um you need to you need to get back on your publisher's case because nobody can find it anywhere. I've I've honestly I've had I'd say at least 10 people message me on Twitter after I recommended it saying that they couldn't find it. But anyway, I I know
1: it's it's out of so we sold everything. I mean, we 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 print, I think about 35,000 were printed which is for, you know, and uh I mean, they're sold, and I think... Do you people... own the rights to the book, Tarek? I do, yeah, I do. I do.
0: Well, if you do, I mean, you can uh, join a print-on-demand service with Amazon, and then anybody yeah. who wants it can get it printed and uh, delivered. You don't have to do anything. It's just uh, prints-on-demand. It, it,
1: the thing is, you know, these things, out of date. It's 2010, and really, even the last edition, I just didn't have the time. I have a day job, you know. Um, but I would really have to update it, and, and one can't just do that in a few weekends. One needs to really devote some time to it, and, and that's the issue. I think uh, I'd want to make it a, you know, give it an update, a refresh, you know. Maybe I shouldn't. It could just be a snapshot in time, you know, just republish. Maybe
0: you should and then self-publish it properly and uh, then you might not need the day job.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We can wish.
0: I mean, I tell you, it's uh, it, it's uh, it, uh, from personal experience, I used to be a university professor and um, the internet allows you to um, be a scholar in a much more productive way than you would through traditional uh, um, uh, traditional university structures. But anyways, Alan, the uh, floor yes. is yours.
2: Um, so Tarek, I, I have a question around, I guess the theme here is convincing people uh, who haven't been exposed to these ideas before, um, which is something I've found myself trying to do and, and struggling in many cases. And so yeah. I think that the the argument that comes up the most that I don't think I have a good answer to, but I suspect you might, because you've thought about it a lot more than me, is that all of the legal and philosophical points that you discussed earlier on, I think in answer to the first question, they, they have a kind of aesthetic appeal but ultimately they're impractical given that I, I guess the mundane point is you know interest exists people do this but possibly even morally because everybody consents. like everyone understands what's going on and so are you just being kind of a moral prude
1: right yeah okay um look you know, there's a question. Uh, I mean, one of the basic posits of, of economic uh, theory, if, if you have a look at people who try to envisage, you know, a, bra- a, a new world and, um, you know, they, they draw up their utopia and they present it to you, is that people have freedom of contract. Now, you know, uh, we kind of assume that they have freedom of contract now. And if they choose to borrow money, then what's the problem, right? Um, Who who am I or you or anybody else to tell them not to? Now, I I actually question that. I don't think we have freedom of contract. I think people's hands are forced very largely because of the system. We don't choose the system on the basis of freedom of contract. The system is there and forces us to choose, right? And if that is the case, then the normal framework in which you have a discussion, you assume you know, assume perfect knowledge or, you know, something, you, you make these, assu- well, you know, one of the key assumptions doesn't hold. We don't have freedom of contract. Therefore, don't tell me that people have chosen this out of, you know, their own free will. Now, um, understanding the system and how it is, of course, uh, people under feudalism probably understood that the lord of the manor had a chokehold on them. And if they left, they'd get picked up and flogged or, or I don't know, burnt or something. I don't know. Um, but they understood the system. It doesn't mean that it was a good system. We um, have to, you know, uh, I think, put the understanding aside, because even if people didn't understand during feudalism that it was a bad system, then, you know, they, they it would still be a bad system. You know, I mean, we can probably make a better analogy, but there we are. So I think take take the understanding out of it. Um, I think we have to look, as, as people who write on this thing, um, uh, as people who are informed and have studied it and give some kind of leadership to others. And it's not an easy job. I, I do agree with you. Um, you know most people do have a day job and are busy working and struggling by and if one comes with philosophical arguments while they can't pay their electricity bill then you know they, they're not going to really have much time to so I think um our job is just to you know, continue doing what we're doing put out our research give our talks write our articles um educate people um propose alternatives find ways of implementing alternatives very difficult because there is this lobby of vested interests you know but we continue to do that um and i I would say that uh you know there's Plenty of historical evidence that can support us. I often refer, uh, to the period of rule in Islamic Spain, um, which went on for twice as long as the capitalist. You say that capitalism maybe stopped sometime in the late 17th century as a 300 year trap history. Well, Islamic Spain lasted for 700 years. There was no debt crisis there. You know, they didn't have interest on money. They didn't have money creation. They used a hard commodity system. Yeah. They had universities. They had trade far-reaching trade, complex financial systems. They had a strong army, yes, a strong military. Um, they did not have this history of huge volatility from uh, man-made devices such as the monetary system they had. Famines, sure. I mean these things can affect any of There's nothing you can do about that. But you know, generally speaking, uh, if you look at that history, you can see a successful, flourishing economy without the predicates of our current system, interest, money creation, and so on, right? And you can you can replicate that. I'm, I'm sure there are many places in the world that I haven't studied, maybe the Chinese, certainly in Baghdad, um, you know, and maybe the North American Indians, you know, had their own sustainable system and they weren't depleting their soil for centuries. Um, th- there are many other systems out there. We mustn't get locked into thinking that this is the one that we, you know, the only one we can choose from uh, or the one that we have to put up.
0: I should uh, I, I should say a little side note here. You mentioned the, the scholastics earlier, and the scholastic scholars in Spain. are are a strong influence on the Austrian school. So generally here, we're very much uh, Austrian uh, leaning in, and most of my listeners are familiar with Austrian economists. And um, Rothbard and Mises have a strong influence, and and they cite the work of the scholastics. Um, And the scholastics were, interestingly, against interest, but also, they were influenced by uh, Islamic work. I think the, the, the tradition of uh, studying and understanding economics that went to the scholastics from what came from um, Islamic uh, scholarship, which had carried forward a lot of the ancient uh, Greek scholarship.
1: Yes, I think that, that is true, uh, and uh, you can see the evidence of that uh, in, in many places. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I mean, the, the Austrians have influenced me. I've, I've read, uh, you know, on Mises and Hayek and uh, rothbard and you know that group of writers from around that time um who provide very persuasive arguments especially on you know the 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 side of morality if you like um you know as to uh, you know if human choice is you know the thing that should uh, you know freedom of Individual actions produces the aggregate, um, making those assumptions that they are truly free in their choices, um, and therefore the state, for example, shouldn't regulate prices. And so, um, we have, um, uh, you know, this long uh, kind of tradition in this land that we shouldn't regulate prices. We shouldn't step in there to to you know uh, make palliatives because we may create problems that are bigger than the thing we're trying to solve. Um, so I think you know that. That, that morality is there. The, the, the issue, of course, is where, where does all this start? Um, does it start at the top, you know, with economic policy and laws made by government? Or does it start by individual action? And I think in that sense, there is a large sort of connection here, because what the Sharia proposes is that if you have the right laws at the micro level, that individuals follow, then the top produces itself. You know, if people give wealth tax in charity, if they don't charge interest, if they don't steal, they don't murder. You know, they don't do these things on the individual. Then the results will be fine. And you have this kind of. Um, uh, if I may just sort of digress slightly have this sort of philosophy which says you you have a soil of law uh, Sharia or it's the Christians it would be the Christian law maybe for us it's the sharia it's that soil and a tree grows out of it and that tree has certain features uh, which we would say are the features of justice because a just tree grows from a just soil what has happened in, in recent decades is that the soil uh, in which the tree is growing uh, in the Western world is is not the soil of Sharia it has these major uh, Um, problems such as the charging of interest, the creation of money from nothing, the fiat system, and many other things. And that has produced a tree which has a shape and an institutional structure and features which we as Muslims should never copy because that tree would never grow in our own soil, right? And where this is taking me is that if you... Um, if you look at the modern sort of solutions that muslims have provided to, to in the financial domain they've taken that tree from uh, uh, you know the, the western world and said oh well look they have credit cards we should have islamic credit cards they have uh, you know government bonds we have islamic government bonds then we have home mortgages we should have islamic mortgages, they have derivatives we should have islamic and that whole process for us, this is where we've fallen down uh, because we talk about this great history and our great principles but where is it actually in practice and I think we, you know, it's not entirely our own fault we don't have the soil in which we can grow our tree but also we've made a a big mistake in copying a tree which could never grow in our own soil.
0: That's fascinating. Um, Alan, you had another question?
2: Yeah, uh, yeah, well, it follows on very nicely from something you said before, Tarek, And actually, I was a bit—I'm um, glad that I'm not putting you too much on the spot, given that you've you've just said actually that you're you're relatively familiar with the, I guess, the core Austrians. I, I'd just be really interested in your your thoughts on similarities between Austrian and Islamic economics. And I mean, I have my own, but. I suspect yours will be- Give
1: me yours because then our, our uh, you know, I, I need a crib sheet usually to make a detail. i tell you what, I'll, I'll set
2: it up rather than like actually <laughs> give my uninformed take. So
1: right.
2: I think that they, they both arrive at very similar conclusions about the role of uncertainty and therefore individual decision making in markets. But as far as I can tell, they arrive by completely different lines of reasoning. And so if you, if you have a take on that, that would be fascinating, probably safe as well. Actually, I'm sure he's thought about it too.
1: Uh, I'm going to defer to safe. I, I need to hear what he says before I open my mouth on this, I think. Um,
2: so
0: I think the, uh, the, the way that I see it is that the, um, and, and to follow up on what you said earlier. So the way that the Austrians, um, uh, approach this topic when when you think about it in terms of time preference and the austrian ability to analyze time preference um is the key toward bridging the two uh, ideas like the way that islamic economics um meets with uh austrian economics from the um, islamic compliant economics it's a prescriptive nor uh, prescriptive and normative statement that we want to have a low time preference, and we make sure that everybody has a time preference by following the religion that says uh you know, you follow the religion because the religion says you can't lend at an interest. So, therefore, you're essentially forced to not discount the future heavily because you can't uh gain interest on money. You're forced to not discount the future, it f- kind of um forces you to lower your time preference in a way. On the other hand, um, from the Austrian perspective. Um, I think what happens, you know, Hoppe says uh, the lowering of time preference initiates the process of civilization. And in turn, the process of civilization leads to uh, a feedback which also lowers time preference further and further. And I think um, you arrive at a similar point. Now, here, here's where I depart from uh, Mises and Rothbard. And this is where I think people will start taking the pitchforks out. You know, my usual Austrians... Uh, <laughs> Um, You know, I'm going to get stoned as a heretic by the Austrians for this, I think not by the Muslims, Uh, (laughs) is that uh, from the Austrian perspective, they they think that, uh, you know, time preference determines interest rate, but they don't take that to the conclusion, I think, which is what happens if time preference continues to drop. Well, what happens then is that you basically end up with a system which is similar to the one that you describe in your book Tariq, which is, uh, b- but it isn't imposed through religious doctrine. It's uh, emergent on the market um, because the time preferences dropped, and now uh, you're, you know, you're expected to lose one percent of your money every year on storing that money, and so therefore you're happy to take, um, you- you're happy to save that one percent by giving that money to somebody else who has the legal responsibility to hand it back to you in a year. So you save 1%. And so people will lend, but only to people that they trust. And so lending without interest will be, um, you know, something that happens with friends and family mostly. But then if you want to lend for business, you don't lend, you just take equity. That's the natural thing. Like, why would you, in that situation where where the natural market clearing interest rate drops to zero, why would i want to invest in your business or even if it's very close to zero which is the current situation why would i want to take um sorry not invest in your business why would i want to lend to your business when you're going to pay me back 0.5 percent yeah but i'm um you know taking the creditor risk which means that i could lose 100 so um nobody would be willing to take that situation i think it's just um it's currently um, artificially imposed through the fact that we have an inflationary monetary system that makes it uh, yes. profitable to get into debt, even at an interest, because the
1: money itself is being devalued. This is that's the key right. That. Yes, that's what makes it work very largely. I mean, for the banks, it's exactly. easy. To create value out of nothing. So uh, they, they take the interest yield on it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So... Um, You know, historically, uh, fractional reserve banking would always be failing. And then the way that they managed to make it work in the 20th century was to destroy the currency, basically. You're constantly bleeding the value of the currency in order to keep this um, Ponzi going. And it's essentially an intergenerational Ponzi. Future generations are paying for the conspicuous consumption of current generations. This This is where it has led. Yeah. And that is why I find Bitcoin and the marriage of those two topics so fascinating because, um, (laughs) I mean, you know, Bitcoin operates in a way, um, I, I don't know how familiar you are with the culture around Bitcoin, but one of the most important things to understand about Bitcoin is that it bends to nobody. It just continues. It's just every 10 minutes, there's a new block. And um, it's been doing this for 13 years and leaving behind a constant trail of heartbroken people crying because it won't change and do what they think is best for it to change. And um, so we're in this kind of natural experiment now where we're uh, witnessing this growing, very, very quickly growing uh, hard money economy that can't really be stopped and it's just growing and um. It's giving us an example as it's giving people the ability to save into the future, which I think is um, uh, enormously important. And I think it's going to lower time preference all over the world. So it's going to give people the ability to save, which is going to make them start discounting the future less. And I think you see this among Bitcoiners. It's it's insanely common. I mean, I, I meet a lot of Bitcoiners because my book is popular with Bitcoiners. And it's incredibly common how many people will tell me this, that, you know, um, I say I used to uh, spend all my money drinking and partying. And yeah. then um, I figured out that I could save Bitcoin and I found, looked at Bitcoin, understood Bitcoin. And now I don't drink, I don't party. And I put that money into uh, Bitcoin and I just hold Bitcoin. And then the entire, you see the shift, like you go from um, uh, party and, you know, Time preference just can only de- can only see as far as next weekend and who we 're going to party with to starting a family and yeah. um, thinking you know bitcoiners have grand visions of dynasties and uh, yes. intergenerational things which really fiat people don 't have because fiat people are on a treadmill that uh, means they can 't see past next weekend. Um, everything is discounted there 's no easy way for providing for the future, so what happens mm-hmm. now is we keep lowering time preference because we have Bitcoin. And, um, we're going to see a, a, an empirical test of whether what I'm saying is correct or not. We're going to see time preference continue to drop. And then I'm curious to see what happens with interest. And I think, you know, without... Well, Bitcoin would
1: have to become the dominant system for your empirical test to work, surely.
0: That's what we're doing. I don't know if you've noticed. Yeah. I mean, there yeah, we've been, I, yeah. and
1: how long are you expecting to do this test in the near future? I
0: I mean, we're on it, yeah.
1: <laughs> what percentage does Bitcoin take of total turnover, transaction volume in the world on a daily basis?
0: I think what matters is not so much the transaction volume. What matters is the percentage of cash balances. That's really the key thing. How much of the world's cash balances is in Bitcoin? That's the metric. And right. currently it's at around, I think, Say about half a percent of global cash balances, yeah. so still got a lot of room for growth. But um, I, you know, this is what Bitcoin does; it grows. So the the, the, oh. the, the really fascinating thing here is that, um, and and you know, there are a lot of crazy, controversial ideas in Bitcoin. But I think that Bitcoin is going to effectively bring about a uh, an, an Islamic kind of monetary system. Um, not through any kind of Islamic
1: uh, uh, legislation
0: or regulation, just simply through market incentives, because I think it fits very nicely um, with the Islamic way that you think of finance, where the money is hard, nobody can print the money. So therefore, nobody can guarantee that, you know, if you're giving away a loan and you're getting 5% back, There's nobody out there who can print Bitcoin to bail out the bank that um, is going to inevitably fall short. So people who are going to try these kind of shenanigans are going to end up basically losing their Bitcoins. And um, we're going to head toward a system in which people either lend at a basic uh, interest rate of zero or uh, invest equity. I think it's it's still too early to see this now, but this is how I think of it theoretically in the future.
1: Well, I mean, coming back to the question on uncertainty, then I think that is, a you know, a critical issue. Um, how does, uh, you know, how, how does the world of Islam look at uncertainty in a financial context? And when you make the equity transaction, let's take that as a, uh, you know, the, the basis for, for that this little discussion. Um, you um, you know, an interest-based lender would say, well, look, uh, this is a very uncertain business. It's is a startup. I will lend at 20 percent or 30 percent because there's a lot of risk here. Um, They make that judgement in advance, um, uh, quite subjectively very often, Um, but the issue is, is it a correct apportionment of the risk? Right. If you compare it to the equity position, we make a judgement in advance, should we buy equity in this startup venture, but the actual apportionment is not based on an estimation is based on an actual fact on a set of accounts with a profit number agreed according to a certain number of uh, accounting standards, which people generally uh, abide by and which investors and entrepreneurs both know. Uh, And that profit figure is distributed according to a known percentage share in the equity. So the risk resolves itself into a just distribution, but yes, you make your uh, ascertainment of whether you should invest at the beginning in using your own metrics just as an interest-based lender would. The key is that the interest rate may not match the outcome, Yeah, in which case either the lender is shortchanged because the business was very successful and made a very large profit, or the lender is shortchanged because um, uh, you, you know, he, he, the businessman went bankrupt and uh, lost all the money, and uh, he didn't pay attention to his business as well as he would have done if it had been entirely equity-based. You know, there is this kind of moral hazard for a limited liability company which borrows debt, and the directors can walk off scot-free if the if the company goes bankrupt, they themselves are not on the hook. So you have this asymmetry in interest-based lending, which you don't have in equity. And I will, you know, say that that way of of, of treating uncertainty to say yes, make your own judgment a priori, but the ex post distribution is based on a just uh, economic calculation. I think that's the fair way of handling uncertainty. Right? Um, I mean, we could go on, but let, let's just make, if I can, one more point. The financial system, and uh, I know you want to discuss Bitcoin, <laughs> we're running out of time a bit, but the financial system that we have now. Um, using the interest rate and lending as a motor of economic growth is actually one of the main uh, determinants of increasing wealth inequality. Um, we know as business people that if you want to borrow money from a bank, the, the one sure way of getting money is to already be wealthy. The bank will lend against people who have assets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, People who are poor who don't have assets can't borrow from the bank. So What happens then is that if you, you know, have a society in which many people have business ideas, the ones who actually get the capital are the ones who are wealthy, because they have the security to offer as collateral to the banking system, and that keeps the wealth circulating within the wealthy. Right? If you have an equity-based system, the investor's only chance of making a profit is not by taking security on your house and selling it if your business goes bad. Yeah, it's by sharing your profit. Yeah, so they want to invest in people who have good ideas and who make profit, right? And a poor person can have just as good ideas as a rich person, right? So, under the equity system, the key is not the level of wealth that you already have when you make your application for finance. The question is, how good is your idea? How good is your management? How good is your experience? And wealth is not such a central determinant of who gets the funds under an equity based system. So, I would actually say that you know, to welcome uncertainty and treat it in the right way, actually, uh, is not only just morally, uh, you know, it, it's actually something which helps us from the uh, economic point of view to reduce the terrible wealth inequality that we're suffering.
0: Yeah, I should, uh, I should say here, um, you know, we've hosted uh, Michael Saylor, and um, in my book, The Fiat Standard, you know, it, it, it's kind of like a user manual to how to use the fiat system. Based on the fact that it is a monetary system that is inflationary, um, Saylor offers, basically he says this is what rich people do everywhere. And I think it's very correct. And when you understand how fiat works, it makes a lot of sense. What rich people do everywhere is that they have assets and they borrow against them and they borrow in the currency that is depreciating. And so their yeah. debt is constantly getting cheaper to repay. And they generate cash flow from these uh, businesses that more than covers the debt because the debt is very long term. And so they just keep rolling it over and they live off of it. And the way that this system is done, the way that this system works is that it allows uh, people who own money, who have wealth, to just keep the wealth there without having to actually do anything with it, just uh, use it to borrow against it. And this is effectively what Sailor is doing. Um, with Bitcoin and that he's borrowing fiat, using his company to borrow fiat to buy Bitcoin, which, is uh, it's it's a great because it's kind of uh it's a, it, it's the way that we uh euthanize this insane system where right, if right. everybody mm-hmm. keeps borrowing and then uh, buying bitcoin um eventually we end up with more bitcoin than us dollar debt and uh eventually we euthanize uh, the bond market and uh, people <laughs> use uh, bitcoin as their saving uh, as their medium of saving i mean this is really the plan i've, I've said this before um, the appetizer for Bitcoin is the gold market. We're going to take the share of gold as a store of value, but the main course is the bond market. The main course is people stop holding bonds for the long term and they start holding equity and Bitcoin. And Bitcoin well, it's, a, it's, a, it's,
1: a, it's a kind of crunch point that's coming in the sense that the bond market has been held up by creation of fiat money. Uh, you know, governments have yeah. been supporting bonds. And yet that very act... Uh, supports the price of bonds, stops them falling, stops the interest rates going up. So you have an inflationary environment, which keeps the interest rate low, which is an astonishing uh, uh, kind of uh, contradiction, you know, in economic terms. And, and uh, yeah, where that resolves itself too will be is a very interesting point, actually, that's coming, I think, fairly soon.
0: Yeah, and I think the, the way to think of it is that initially people used to save in gold and then they took the gold and then they gave them physical money and told them it's okay. Um, you you'll get It's going to be better because you put the money in a bank account and you get an interest rate yeah. and you don't need the physical gold. That was like the 1930s. And bank interest rates for a while could keep up with inflation, but that of course was unsustainable um, and it led to banking crises and all kinds of problems and then interest rates went down. And then they couldn't keep up with inflation, so you had to go to the bond market to save. And that was, of course, great for the government because you're buying bonds from governments and that's financing them and it's allowing them to create money and create debt and spend insane amounts of money on all kinds of insane sorts of things. But that was also a Ponzi and it was not sustainable. So the bond market couldn't keep up. And now the bond, you know, bonds don't beat inflation. So people have moved to stocks. Now stocks are the way to beat inflation. And so people put their saving account in the stock index, which basically is the way to try and uh, beat inflation. If you don't have access to the stock index, you're... Getting ruined by inflation, Um, you you have no easy um, refrain from it. It's just constantly robbing everybody in the world who has cash and um, bank accounts as saving assets and rewarding people who have access to uh, US government credit at low interest rates. So it's a massively unfair system, but it's coming, I think, to to, to a point. I mean, it is is an unsustainable Ponzi, and I think uh, the way out of this is uh, Bitcoin. So that brings us to Bitcoin. So, what do you think about Bitcoin? Are you orange-billed yet?
1: <laughs> People, uh, I mean, have have asked me uh, to sort of pin my flag to uh, look. I think uh, w- one can look at this again from a, you know a legal perspective and, and ask questions. If you want the, the Sharia perspective on it, um, you know, then I can tell you that there are certain issues which need to be discussed, and I think perhaps those discussions have not advanced as quickly as they should have done. Uh, you know, given the growth in public interest, but um, you know, there is a general point in, in Sharia that uh, you know, wealth is anything that's useful, uh, and property is wealth that can be owned. So, you know, there are some kinds of wealth that can't be owned, uh, like sunlight, uh, or a beautiful view, uh, or some public, uh, like water, for example, underneath the ground, is definitely wealth because it has a use. And wealth is anything that's useful to society. Um, but some kinds of wealth can't be owned. Now, one has to go through this process of asking, is it wealth? If it's owned wealth, then it's, it's property. Uh, is it a valid form of, uh, of property, therefore? Um, and is it then the kind of property that you can trade? Um, uh, and there is this progression of questions. So it's well known, I think, in sharia that some kinds of uh, um, item are not regarded as wealth at all, like alcohol, for example, or pork, you cannot sell that if you try to in a transaction, the transaction is void. Um, uh, and there are some kinds of wealth which are useful, but you cannot sell. right? If we ask these questions about Bitcoin, then we we can come to a position where we can say, well, what is it itself? It is um, uh, potentially, under one view, uh, a receipt for ownership of, of something, uh, as a title is to a house, for example, at a land registry. right? You have a document which gives evidence of ownership of a property. Right. And for tokens on the cryptocurrency system, then I think that's a fairly good analogy. You know, a token gives you a right utility token or an asset token to a particular, you know, uh, service or, 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 or asset uh, or a share in it. Um, and I think there is generally no uh, disagreement now among uh, modern scholars that uh, a receipt, a warrant, a warehouse receipt can be used to trade copper or, you know, uh, assets of that nature. This is not actually what cryptocurrency is, I think. I think we have to pass by that potential um, uh, characterization and ask about a second form of characterization, which is that it is a kind of digital asset in the same way that, for example, a digital copy of my book might be uh, an asset. It exists on a database, it's electronic, um, and people can buy that because it has a utility. Um, you can use it uh, for your benefit and you can value it whatever you want. If you want to pay a thousand pounds for it, you can. If you you know, buy a bed, sell it for one pound, I can. Um, and again, I think that's not what we're talking about here with uh, cryptocurrency. What we seem to be looking at with uh, the the um, uh, non-tokenized cryptocurrency is a database entry. Okay, uh, and the question that we have to ask, uh, I think an analogy is helpful. I can say to you, look, uh, it, you know, uh, a record on a database is is a record of a a thing that exists outside of the database. Uh, if I have a house, uh, I can certainly buy and sell the record of the house, which is on an electronic database. But the thing that gives the record value is the asset that stands behind it. I can live in a house. I can't live in a database record, right? Mm-hmm. We have to ask the question, is uh, Bitcoin a- an electronic uh, work of art, for example, of intellectual property, which I can buy and sell? Or is it some conceptual value that that exists as a record on a database? Um, Then the question becomes, um, should we be using this as a kind of money? Now again, just a couple of minutes on this and then you can tell me what what your thoughts are and where you want to go. there are Muslim scholars who have said, and these are very literalist ones, that only gold and silver can be money, and that indeed God created gold and silver to be money. Right? And they have taken a very literalist position and an exclusive position and say that gold and silver is the only form. Of There's a very close connection with what the Austrians have said in the past on this. Right? Um, there are other scholars who have said that gold and silver can be money, and you cannot prohibit them being used as money because the Prophet, peace be upon him used them as money and you cannot prohibit what the Prophet permitted, right? Um, so uh, we uh, have those scholars who perhaps sit in the middle and then there are those scholars who are perhaps the most liberal ones who say that we use the objectives of Sharia, justice, stability and so forth to judge what should be money. Um, and any system which has low cost or lower cost, that has security, that has justice, safety, transparency, uh, can be used, right? And these ones tend more to support, they have even supported, for example, the fiat money system in the past by saying, you know, it costs a lot of money to dig gold out of the, the earth. Why do we spend all this money when we can have a cheap system producing paper at very little cost? Right? So you have this range of opinions. One thing that I would say is that at the time uh, of uh, Umar ibn al-Khattab, they were discussing using camel skin as leather, right? They had that discussion, they decided not to, not because they thought that gold and silver only should be money, but because they thought that too many camels would be killed in the race to acquire camel skin money, right? This is a very important point because it means that something that is permitted, a camel and camel skin, and you can sell and buy camels was not adopted on the wider economic case that we don't want to go destroying our stock of camels in a race for money. And remember that this has many feedbacks in it. Money is something that is used to buy things. If we kill all the things that we would buy, <laughs> if we destroy them well then what's the point in having money? So there has to be a balance. This you know, and this is one thing that is in favor of gold and silver that. You know, gold and silver is produced if the value of money is high, in other if, if there's a shortage, because the cost of buying the capital equipment to mine the gold and silver will be low when the cost of money is high, yeah? when, when, when gold is expensive, it means capital prices are low, yeah? so the one is the corollary of the other, so shortage of money. Uh, gold expensive, prices low, buy capital equipment, produce gold, gold supply increases, prices decrease, capital equipment becomes expensive. Can't buy capital equipment to produce gold because there's not a profit in it. And the, so we have this kind of level, you know, there's a natural balance. And we have to think about you know these wider economic connotations and not just look at the narrow legal position. But that narrow legal position is where I believe we start. So question: is it a receipt for ownership? Is it digital art, intellectual property of a kind? Is it a conceptual value that resides on a database and we use it because it's cheaper, more transparent, so forth, and we justify it on the objectives of the religion?
0: I, I would say it's not a receipt, it, it, because it is the good in itself. So this, a lot of people say, well, Bitcoin is backed by nothing. And the answer to that is Bitcoin is itself the backing of other things. You can have things backed by Bitcoin. In other words, gold is not backed by anything either. It itself has its value. Um, I think the best way to think about Bitcoin, perhaps from this uh, perspective is that it is the, um, it is the monetary, uh, properties of gold um separated from the physical properties of gold so it's like a form a new a new chemical you know if you want a new periodic element in the in the periodic table that has no electrons no photons and uh no protons Uh, it it, it's not um it's not physical It's similar to gold in its economic properties. And I think the key thing, you know, the the story of camels. I had not heard this one before, and I find it really fascinating, the idea that uh, they'd use this. So in in the Bitcoin standard, I discussed this, um, you know, why gold and silver end up being money. And it is uh, precisely because they have the lowest supply growth rate, uh, because it's just very hard to increase more, find more. Yeah, stock
1: versus flow. And I I read the, the whole book. I thought it was very good, by the way.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Glad to hear that. So it is the stock to flow. And the problem with camel as money is not, as you say, it's not that it is not yellow and shiny like uh, gold or silver. The problem with camel as money is that you can just kill all the camels and then you have a lot of money and then you don't have any camels and then you starve. So you want something that is not easy for anybody else to produce. You don't want copper, for instance. You don't want nickel. You don't want oil because people just make more and more of this and then they'll bring the price down. So Bitcoin takes that economic property, which is the difference between camel and silver and gold, the difference between oil and gold, the difference between copper and gold, and codifies it into software and allows you to buy it digitally. Now, yes, you can't hold it physically, but, um, just because you can't hold it physically it doesn't mean that it doesn't have value. I mean, um, and, and I think this shouldn't be something difficult for a, uh, a Muslim scholar to understand. Um, it, it, just because it doesn't exist physically doesn't mean it doesn't have value. And the reason is, you know, ju- even though it doesn't exist physically, it's just say a number or a series of, uh, uh characters that you memorize. You were able to use it in the same way in which you use gold in other words you can click these numbers into the right machine at the right time and you can pay me and you can make transfer of a payment for me so it performs all of the functions of gold it's like a way of buying this new chemical this new uh, element on the periodic table that is uh, like gold but better but doesn't have any of the physical properties so I am no sheikh, but I don't see uh, a reason why this would be haram. The fact that the price yeah. goes up and down um, is, is 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 not a problem with Bitcoin. It's a problem with the fiat monetary system, and it uh, causes yes. the price no, of I everything mean, to go yeah. up and
1: down. I think uh, the price volatility is is not the issue. Uh, you know, in, in, subject to freedom of contract, of course, but you know, per se, price volatility is not the issue. Uh, there were people who went to the Prophet Peace upon him and asked him to regulate the price of wheat during a famine and he refused because he knew that you have to address the cause of the problem, not the results of it. You know, if you, you know, uh, I mean, you know, it's the, I, I think there are many analogies here, but uh, you know, the, the issue comes back to what I said earlier, trying to cure a problem uh, uh, by, by addressing the, 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 the effect rather than the cause can lead to even bigger problems. So I think, um, one has to look really, one has to focus on the narrow legal issues first. And I think intellectual property rights are widely accepted now. I think there are very few serious scholars, in fact, none that I know, of who don't accept intellect patents, for example, intellectual property rights as a genuine form of asset. And indeed, I don't think them, you know, in modernity with inventions and designs. And so you need patents. And, need, and these things that exist digitally, they, you know, they, there isn't a physical thing to them, really. Um, So that kind of right, I think, is accepted. Now, um, you know, there is another issue that we need to look at and the objectives, of course, um, are are relevant here because we may still make a judgment that says that Bitcoin is actually not fulfilling the requirements of Islamic law, but it is actually a lot better than the thing we're using at the moment, which is the fiat money system, right? So there, there is this lesser of two evils argument and I kind of put that into the objectives category. You know, when we... Look at reasons for. Actually, uh, let me say the, the 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 basis of Islamic law is is it's a prohibitions-based law. We don't look to see whether something's permissible. We look to see whether something's prohibited. So the rules list what is prohibited, right? And then if we don't see any of these prohibitions being relevant to a particular uh, issue, then it's permitted by 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 default. Yeah. Um, so, so we have to look at it on that basis. Um, but having said that, then you know there 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 is this fiat money system which is not transparent, where your money can be frozen at any time, where someone can press a button, you know, uh, in, in a central bank somewhere, and suddenly you've got nothing. Um, and you know, on that basis, it, it it would seem that Bitcoin is better. But of course, you know, we. And people inside the system have thought, said to me that we cannot be 100% sure that there are no back doors, that somebody isn't watching the transactions that are happening within the system. Um, so, you know, we have to be, uh, you know, I think willing to accept uh, uh, that there are some unknowns there. Uh, nevertheless, um, I think if we were then as, um, you know, advisors to speak to people who are thinking to, to invest, to take the role of an investment manager, um, then one would ask the question, look, it may be permissible, but is it wise to go into this? Um, and people who've read the history of the Dutch tulip boom will know how herd mentality can take over. Um, and if one is a scholar, one has a duty to people to say, look, um, there is a speculative mania going on. Um, tulip bulbs are not worth one million dollars each. Um, uh, this will all be over in a few years and you'll lose everything. Um And if there is this subsidiary economic issue, you know, we're not dealing with principles now, we're just asking the question, have people gone mad? Are they paying too much for this digital record? Right. Then I think any scholar, any person has the right to make that commentary. He has the right to say, look, guys, prices are too high. You know, Uh, this has been whipped up and, uh, you know. And who is to deny that? I mean, you can make an economic argument both ways, right? Um, so I think that kind of argument we have to separate out. I don't think it's probably relevant to what you want to talk about. We need to talk about the principles, the legal issues uh, surrounding, you know, what is this thing that one is buying and selling?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, uh, the, the, the the Dutch tulip thing, I think, is... Uh say uh is a favorite whipping uh horse of the no coiners but um it actually never really happened it's uh, mainly apocryphal stories of just the price of tulips going up for a few months and it it, it wasn't such a big deal it was um magnified because people were trying to tell uh Calvinists were trying to promote anti-capitalist propaganda, and so they made it like... But anyways, Bitcoin is not tulips, and the <laughs> agricultural prices of uh, agricultural commodities in 17th century Amsterdam bear little relation to the realities of 21st century uh, technology.
1: Uh, South Sea bubble, then, Mississippi you know, scheme. I mean, there's plenty of... Well,
0: here's the thing. Like, This is the thing. If you actually really look at how those bubbles work... Bitcoin is the precise anti-bubble technology in that whether it is the um, South Sea bubble or uh, the tulips or housing bubbles or stock market bubbles or anything, ultimately, what is happening is that people use those things as a store of value because their money is crappy. Their money is being inflated, so they choose to escape that by buying this thing. And then because everybody is dumping their money for this thing, this thing goes up. Mm-hmm. And then more and more people enter into it, and then it goes up more and more and more. But then what happens? Then supply catches up, whether it's houses, whether it's tulips, whether it's south, you know, land in Louisiana or whatever it is, people find more uh, of the thing that is being monetized, and they bring it onto the market, and they bring the price crashing down. Mm-hmm. So gold resists that. Or sorry, because, say, just yeah. to
2: interrupt very briefly, uh, and to tie it to Islamic economics and finance as well, another reason that can happen or an additional reason at the same time is because they were doing it on leverage that then defaults. Yeah. yeah.
0: Exactly. And that's why leverage is haram. Uh, and do so, you think
1: some people are buying Bitcoin on leverage? Of course. I mean, a lot yes. of
0: people are. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, so this is... Um, the, the, this is um yeah I, I lost my train of thought i'm sorry <laughs> but yeah
1: were so Sea bubble mississippi it's the, the money yes. system is causing so, them to
0: do that exactly and and bitcoin is different in this regard because there's no way of making more of it and this is the key thing mm. which is the difficulty adjustment mm. which uh, means that bitcoin has a supply production schedule currently we're making around 900 bitcoins a day Yes. and bitcoin is abided by the schedule regardless of how many people are using it so whether it's 8 people using bitcoin all over the world or 8 billion people using bitcoin all over the world we're only making 900 tomorrow there's no mechanism for bringing a large supply of bitcoin onto the market that brings the price crashing down so it's the south sea bubble that is prevented from ever popping that's the problem with all of these bubbles is that they were monetizing things that were inflationary that can be increased in their supply that don't have a very high cost of production. The cost of production doesn't keep up with the increased monetary demand. So the monetary demand increases the price for land in Louisiana or houses or tulips or whatever it is. It goes up a lot, but then the production catches up. The uh, the, The market price goes up. The cost of production is low. Producers just make more until they bring the two together. And so that destroys anybody who saves in it. Bitcoin resists this because the producers can't make more. Right, so but they could
1: produce a second Bitcoin system, maybe.
0: Yes, and that's why. Um, uh, the, well, it's not like Bitcoin because it doesn't have ultimately what makes Bitcoin important, which is that it is decentralized and nobody controls it. So Bitcoin you think that can as, never
1: be achieved again.
0: Yes. Because basically what happened is that Bitcoin was introduced by a guy who disappeared and it's been running for 12 years without him and it has attracted throughout those 12 years everybody who accepts the idea that they don't get to uh, make money and they don't get to print money, they don't get to live in a world of fiat where they get seniorage anymore. Anybody who wants a neutral protocol went into Bitcoin. Everybody who wanted to be their own inflationary um, shitcoin central bank went and started their own inflationary shitcoin central bank which is highly centralized and if these have succeeded you know if you see them um even compared to bitcoin in any sense they're only being compared to bitcoin because um they're being centralized and they're being promoted and marketed by people who are paying money in order to make them sound like they are like bitcoin but the more successful the altcoin is the more centralized it is and with Bitcoin, it's the exact opposite. It's been it's becoming more and more decentralized over time, whereas all the altcoins are just um, centralized gimmicks. So this is why Bitcoin is really the only one that matters, and this is why Bitcoin is the only one that. Uh, uh, this I think I could again I'm not the sheikh, but I think Bitcoin is the only one that is halal because with everything else you're buying. I mean. Even if it is consensual, you're buying into something that is just basically somebody else's um, database. And they can mess with that database in all kinds of ways. And that can... Uh, the, the, you're you're allowing somebody to print money at low cost. So I think it's similar to the camel story, but there are no camels there. So you're just making uh, the people behind those things um, extremely rich and extremely powerful in a way that's unsustainable because these things won't be able to grow into a neutral protocol used apolitically, internationally all over the world. Yes, and I think in that case...
1: Yeah, you, you have this uncertainty issue coming back then, you know, if, if the value that you're buying is uncertain and the, the traditional example was the bird in the air, you can't sell a bird in the air because you never know whether you'll be able to catch it. You might own it, you know, it might have flown the cage, but you still own it. But how can you sell it to somebody? You never guarantee you'll be able to catch the thing. Um, and if there's uncertainty, you know, over a, the a camel in a, in a womb, for example, an unborn camel, you, you can't sell it. You don't know whether it's healthy, male, female, big, small. So um, you know, on those traditional examples, um, mm-hmm. scholars have given themselves the, the the right to judge things impermissible based on the uncertainty over their existence or of their value. Uh, and I think you know, in those systems where people have simply gone on a sort of prima donna kind of roadshow and promoted their new coin, and it's just a, you know their own laptop. And and then I, I read one example about this. Few years back, uh, you know, that kind of thing, I think, you know, can be prohibited on legal grounds of uncertainty. Um, And of course, you may not know at the time uh, that the system is, you know, suffers from this flaw of uncertainty or or lack of transparency or fraud. Um, You may, may. You need to make a judgment, you know, based on your experience and perhaps even your intuition, uh, that a particular system is is uh, not reliable. Now, that is a particular problem because Sharia generally judges on the basis of facts that are observable, not on the basis of intentions. And if you look at somebody and you say, Look, I can see, you know, they've got this new coin, but I just don't like the look of this person, right? That is not a sufficient grounds. Um, for making something prohibited. Now, if you give yourself the right to say that about some other coin, right, not Bitcoin, then maybe somebody has the right to say this about Bitcoin because we do not know who invented it, right? And I think you must accept that there are, whether they're right or wrong, there are sincerely held views that say, you know, how do we know and can you give a guarantee that next year Bitcoin won't be worth nothing? You know, can you give that guarantee? Are you absolutely 100% certain? Now, you know, people have that right to make that judgment. Um, and I think what I'm saying is that there may be scholars out there who say, look, it seems OK, but we just have this feeling <laughs> that something's not right here. right?"
0: Um, <laughs> and yeah, but I mean, I mean look, to... we have a lot more than feelings uh, as a I problem with the fiat that. system.
1: Yeah, that's oh, with the, the key Fiat thing. System, no, and quite, and with the fiats, isn't there clear demonstrations that this is a corrupt system, which you know is in the hands of a particular power elite who will use it? I mean, the Russians have just suffered. You know, if one regards this as reserve money, and suddenly a few hundred billion of it can be frozen, right? Then it's not reserve money, right? um so i mean we of course there are questions but I'm, I'm i'm speaking to you as somebody who is an advocate for bitcoin and i'm just trying to demonstrate that there is a range of concerns and um you know that to, who would know what was the coin that failed in europe the one coin was it or uh,
2: a lot of coins have failed no, a lot of coins have failed billions, fail went,
1: right now at the time that it was launched you, i looked at it i said look Bulgarian company, Gibraltar, regular. I, I, I was thinking, mm, these are not renowned places for financial regulation, but I can't tell you that you shouldn't go into it. I can just say that I wouldn't, right? Uh, it just triggered alarm bells, you know? And um, so there, there is this kind of thing in the background, which is not a legal argument. It's just the feeling of people who've been around a while, you know? yeah.
0: No, I, I, I can see this, but I think you know the uh, the, the argument ultimately comes back to um, fiat and the current uh, riba system, and this is. Uh, I mean, I think scholars are grasping at straws, trying to find reasons why they would say that Bitcoin is problematic from a Sharia perspective, while um, really avoiding the very blatantly obvious problems with uh, riba money. And this is, of course, I mean, this is political, of course, because like in, in Muslim countries, you don't get to be a religious authority. If you go on TV and tell people, hey, you need to dump your governmental shitcoin and uh, not play these central bank games. So all over the Islamic world, um, modern banks um, operate and they operate the system. And um, a lot of sheikhs have um, admitted that, look, this is just the way that the world works. And um, you... Uh, you have to play along with it so it's it's quite common in many muslim countries that sheikhs have said that if you don't do this you're harming yourself and um you would be in uh, you're weakening and um immiserating yourself and uh, that's not something that islam wants from you so go ahead and after writing the fiat standard really looking into how fiat works I can sort of see the argument from that. I'm, I'm not saying uh, it is uh, justified. I, I, I don't have the ability to issue no. edicts, but I'm saying.
1: But it's a pragmatic kind of statement of fact. Um, it's a very define, pragmatic statement
0: of fact in the sense that. Statement of fact, yeah,
1: it's not even a judgment, it's
0: just a statement of fact. I know? think the, after writing the fiat standard, I came to this um, very controversial conclusion that essentially fiat is a tax on being Muslim. Because if you are uh, in a money that is devalued, everybody who engages in lending and borrowing is benefiting from the devaluation of the currency, and everybody who saves is paying for that. So effectively, it's taxing people who don't engage in um, interest-based lending and rewarding people who do. And I think um, it's it, it, this has been a massive problem for the Islamic world over the last 100 years, Because they haven't been able to benefit from the system as much as others have.
1: Uh, Potentially, Um, yes. I mean, uh, and they've sold their resources for this devaluating money. So
0: exactly. So, this is the context from which you need to judge Bitcoin. I think this is, this is, I- instead of getting into the idea of, well, you know, there's all these um, um, sci fi scenarios about what might happen that would ruin the world. The reality is currently you're using dollars or national currencies of Muslim countries that are backed and based on the dollar. You're perpetuating the system and making it stronger by using it. And Bitcoin is an alternative. And it's an alternative where you can, you know, the more you study into it, and this is, this is really the thing, the more you study into it, the more you realize it's different from altcoins, it's different from national currencies. It doesn't have anybody in charge. And of course, I can't guarantee anything, you know, I don't know the future, nobody knows the future. I can't make a guarantee about Bitcoin being there tomorrow. <laughs> But the the, the choice you have to make is not between a Bitcoin, between a world of me offering you a world of 100% certainty where Bitcoin is there tomorrow and worth more or not. Uh, The choice is you are going to be using uh, the fiat riba money that is losing value, that is creating all these problems, that is against your religion, or are you going to be using Bitcoin? Now, think about which one has a better chance of maintaining its value over time. And then think about which one um, is more in uh, accordance with the, your principles, and then it becomes a, a fair comparison. I think this is this is this is where uh, th- this is the mental leap that people need to make when understanding yeah. it. It's 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 yeah. not just you know we're we're not looking at a new optional app that we're thinking of. Should I download this app on my phone or not? You already have a very bad app on your phone. You have malware, which is the US dollar. So uh, you can't just say, well, am I downloading this or not? Well, if you download this, you're getting rid of that malware. You can't ignore that out of the cost-benefit analysis.
1: <laughs> okay. Um, when we started, you, you, you said maybe we'll get through in an hour. Uh, <laughs> <come on. laughs> Well, time uh, time preference was
0: positive, so we discounted the second hour very heavily.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Very high time reference. But I think uh, it's been very interesting, and uh, I'm I'm very glad that I came on and had this discussion with you.
0: Thank you, likewise. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been very fascinating, and I uh, look forward to staying in touch and hearing. what you're up to. And I really do insist you must republish the book. Just put it on Amazon, even if you don't edit it. And then once it starts selling, you'll uh, encourage you, it'll encourage you to uh, start putting more time into editing it and making an updated version.
1: Okay. So I'll take that very seriously. I'll see what I can do in the next year or so.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us, and thanks to Alan and to everybody else who joined. Thank you, Alan. Uh, Thank
1: you, everybody else. For being okay. We didn't listening. have
0: time for questions, but uh, we'll we'll have to. We'll um, have they can, can connect
1: with me. I don't mind if they connect with me privately, and we can talk. Um.
0: Fantastic. And I have a feeling we'll have you on again. This isn't the end of the discussion on Bitcoin and uh, Islamic
1: finance. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Inshallah. Inshallah. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you, Steve.